Welcome, everyone, to the pre-lunch panel. Uh, I am Brady Walkinshaw, and I'm the MC for the politics, all the politics panels throughout the day today. I'm the, the CEO of an environmental website called grist.org. Uh, so it's great to have you all here. Uh, and I think you've come to what is, this is our third panel here today, and I'm super excited about this. We have a great set of panelists on a, I think, provocative and tremendously germane theme to the world that we're living in today and the community we're living in in the Northwest. So I want to start by introducing some of the, the five, the four panelists here and the moderator, and then I'm going to turn it over to, to Sarah, our moderator, to take things from there. So closest, on, on the far end next to Sarah, um, we have Zoltan Grossman. Uh, and Zoltan is a professor of geography and native studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia. In 2017, uh, Zoltan authored the book Unlikely Alliances, Native Nations and White Communities Joined to Defend Rural Lands. And Zoltan will also be doing a book signing in the lobby after this panel. Uh, then closest to me, uh, we have a Seattle investigative reporter, David Nywert. And David is the author of the book Alt-American, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Donald Trump, which again is relevant to our day. Uh, and he has been tracking extremists for more than two decades. And, and like a good author, has the book with him. Um, so to his left, uh, you have Ethan Blevins. Uh, and Ethan is an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation, Pacific Northwest office, uh, where he litigates cases involving the First Amendment, property rights, school choice, and the separation of powers, which is a broad portfolio. Um, and then directly to his left, uh, we have Jamil B. And Jamil is a student at the Evergreen State College. They study how self-actualization promotes success for queer students and students of color. And Jamil has been very active and involved in the student demonstrations at Evergreen uh, throughout their academic career. And then last but not least, uh, we have our moderator, who you'll hear a bunch more from, and that's Sarah Bernard. And Sarah was a staff writer at the Seattle Weekly, and she, before I started, was a fellow at the publication. I now have the, the privilege of running Grist, and she had her master's degree at Berkeley in journalism, and she's now a producer of a local podcast, which I just learned launched today, which is called Seattle Land. So with that... <laughs> Well, welcome to the panel. I also just very quickly need to thank our sponsors, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and for the politics track Uber, without whom none of this would be possible. So thanks to them. And over to you, Sarah. So welcome. Thank you. All right, this is working. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'm Sarah. Um, I, this is an incredibly complex top topic. It's contentious. It is so timely. We are all thinking about this, I think, across the nation and certainly locally. Um, uh, I will just say really briefly, there are a couple of events that happened here in Washington State over the past year that reflect uh, some of the discussions we're going to have today about free speech and hate speech on campus. Um, one of them that comes to mind is what happened when Milo Yiannopoulos came to the University of Washington Seattle campus. Uh, student protesters arrived, and one of those protesters ended up shot at the Evergreen State College in Olympia. Um, it's a more complex story. I'll just try to say very briefly, understand a white professor criticized a campus event that was designed to discuss uh, race and racism. Students protested, and following media coverage of that controversy, 
um, the campus was targeted by some far-right groups and there were threats of, of violence. So that's a real, it's much more complex than that, but um, those, those two events come to mind in, this, in, this, in the local context of this conversation and uh, you know, 45 minutes is not long enough to talk about this topic. We're gonna get as far as we can. Um, but uh, because we have a couple people here to today who have uh, direct experience with, with Evergreen, what happened at Evergreen last spring, um, I was uh, thinking I would start with you, Jamil. You're a student at Evergreen. You were there last spring. Um, I know we can't go into all the details of, of what happened over the course of a couple of months, actually, but um, I wondered if you could start out, us off by telling us about your own experiences or observations uh, during that time and what really sticks with you from that experience. Um, certainly. Hi, everyone. Hopefully you're doing okay. Um, let's see. Can everyone hear me okay? I can't tell. Okay. <clears throat> um, so spring was heinous. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I think basically um, the experience was... Um, particularly students of color and other marginalized students noticed that there was um, consistent patterns of a lack of accountability from the college about um, things that hindered our education. Um, and we went through the processes that we were told were supposed to um, reconcile that, um, those um, issues and and we just found several dead ends and several dead ends or go to this other office or go to this other place or we've heard several reports about this one staff member but we have, there's no way to solve the issue but you still have to be a student or something. Um, and so eventually we were just like, <laughs> something has to happen. <laughs> um, I'm paying to go to this institution and I'm being told it'll better my life but I feel consistently harmed um, so something has to be done. Um, and so, in an effort to challenge the, um, the patterns that were happening, um, several demonstrations happened, and it, it drew a lot of media and um, hyper-focused attention onto us that um, caused even further harm, um, and there was um, um, not many protections set up by the institution to like protect our own safety. There were several students who were doxxed, um, their identities were put into the world, um, I have friends who um, received like over, I think it was over like 3,228 text messages that were death threats and sexual assault, sexual assault threats and um, young women and femmes who uh, um, suffered, severe, suffered severe trauma. I lost like a quarter of my hair and like 25 pounds in a two week time frame. And like, um, so yeah, just a, a lot of continuous trauma. Um, did you want me to get more specific? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, um, yeah, speaking of continuous trauma, I mean, this, this panel, um, the title, the, the terms that we're, we're talking about today involve free speech and hate speech. And I, I, I mean, I guess for you, Jim Meal, I mean, would you say um, that hate speech was involved? Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, I think... For me personally, the greatest hate speech is, is, or the greatest speech that does harm is when someone is told, here's the way that you can be accountable to me as another member of your community, and then that person's response 
is denial or dismissal. I think it's, for me, it's not when people misgender me that is actually the damaging portion. It's when I say, oh, you misgendered me, and then they come up with excuses or dismiss it or erase that story. That is the act, thing that actually does the greatest harm. It leads to severe gaslighting, trauma, denial of self. Um, and I think that was actually the pattern we saw most during Evergreen is, is it wasn't, our expectation wasn't that institutions are going to be perfect. Institutions have a toxic disgusting history, academic institutions in relation to indigenous communities, black communities, awful. So our expectation when we come to college is not that it's gonna be perfect. Our expectation is that we're gonna have enough agency and voice in that community to say this does harm to us, what are you gonna do about it? And it's, it's the response to the what are you gonna do about it that, was, um, that felt like hate speech or it felt like it allowed and promoted and supported hate speech or facilitated hate speech and, mm -hmm. and harm. Right. Um, and um, I wanted to move on also, speaking of hate speech and free speech and, and the language that we use to talk about these things. I know, uh, Ethan, you're uh, an attorney. You work, uh, your work really focuses on First Amendment protections, on, on the freedom of speech, and on speech in general. Um, I, I wonder if you could help us shed some light on, on the sort of legal definitions of, of what we understand to be um, hate speech. Like, what does the law say about hate speech? Sure, well, one of the difficulties is that there isn't a very good definition. Um, <clears throat> and typically, when uh, universities have sought to define it, um, they tend to do so in a, in a broad ma manner that sometimes raises concerns about chilling speech that is significant or should be protected. Um, you know, I, I, I brought along some, some of the uh, definitions we've seen are actually, um, uh, are in Europe attempts to, to define it. So for example, um, I can find a quote here. So the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example, says that uh, it's an, it, that the states that are part of the International Covenant should declare an offense punishable by law. Um, all, dis, all dissemination of ideas based on racial superiority or hatred inci and incitement to racial discrimination. And uh, the states that are party to that kind of a treaty um, have tended to uh, to follow that kind of a definition and have run into sometimes problems where you'd have a public official who, for example, in the United Kingdom, there was a rash for a little while of um, police officers arresting street pre preachers because they were quoting from the Bible. And, and the officers in those instances considered that to fit within the regi regime of hate speech. So one of the problems with a broad definition is it allows that kind of discretion and can be abused. Um, as the First Amendment stands now, almost all hate speech is protected. The kinds of things that aren't protected would be a true threat of violence, the kinds of things that Jamil w was, uh, was mentioning. But um, hate speech can be pro provocative. It can even um, incite violence among the opposition crowd who doesn't like it. And it's still generally, for the most part, protected. Can I say one thing, too, just quickly in response? I, thank you. Um, the, the one thing I also want to note is that it was that it's the word violence that also got really complex in which um, specific powers wanted to maintain control of what violence looked like. And as we know, those voices aren't necessarily the people who could, def who could best express what violence feels like for themselves. And so that was part of the complication. Oh, yeah. Exactly. We could define these terms all day, but violence as well. Um, I mean, I, I was going to ask a, more, uh, a little bit of a provocative question um, also. I know that, um, at least according to the Seattle Times, when Milo uh, Yiannopoulos came to the UW, he, he told the students there, quote, <clears throat> there is no definition of hate speech. 
There's just things you don't like to hear. And so I wanted to just open this up to the whole panel. Um, what do you all think about this narrative out there, this idea out there that there are these um, uh, far left uh, campus activists, whether those be students of, or faculty, who are acting in a way that is too far down, down the road of political correctness and thus chilling, chilling the freedom of speech, chilling speech uh, of people who have opposing views. What do you think of that idea? Anybody? Um, so one thing, that at, at the SPLC, we do have kind of a working definition of hate speech, and it's really closely related to our definition of hate groups. Our definition of hate groups is that these are groups that engage in, uh, or that whose primary purpose is to demean, uh, demonize, and dehumanize um, uh, people for their intellectual characteristics, um, and and based and based on those intellectual characteristics, uh, in a way that um, threatens them and and dehumanizes them, and. Generally speaking, we see hate speech as the kind of speech that hate groups engage in in demonizing and dehumanizing people for their their intellectual characteristics, and um, those are so we 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 do a lot of that work. Um, we have obviously been uh, concerned about some of the. Um, activities that have occurred around some of the uh, events, these so-called free speech events that we've had up and down the West Coast. Um, I was at the, the Milo event. I was at the Evergreen event. I was at the event in Berkeley. I was, I've been covering these things. Um, and I've been assaulted uh, by black bloc members for, I was assaulted January 20th uh, at, uh, uh, the, at the Milo event for having a camera. <laughs> and so I, I'm not a fan of black block tactics. I consider basically in a lot of ways these folks are essentially every bit as totalitarian and authoritarian as the people I'm dealing with on the far right. What I can also say, though, is that they're a tiny little group. There's hardly any people who engage in this stuff. It's a tiny little minority, whereas the alt-right is a phenomenon that we're seeing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people engaging in. So there's a big difference in terms of the actual threat. However, um, I will say that a lot of the... Um, Anger. Uh, let's just say that 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 uh, people. The way we uh, frequently discuss uh, politics and racial and ethnic issues on the far left ha really have a lot to do with the way we feed into this uh, reaction from the far right. Now, I won't. I would never argue that the folks on the far left are causing uh, the alt right to rise. But they're playing a role in the dynamic. Um, the, obviously, the causes of the alt-right and the radical right date back 20, 30 years and have to do with really systemic, deep issues, have to do with you know, the rise of the, the, the existence of white nationalism as a force, have to do with the rise of the patriot militia movement, they have to do with the rise of the conspiracy uh, theory industry, the Alex Joneses of the world. It's, it's all part of that. However, part of that dynamic, unquestionably, has been the fact that we 
Um, that on the left, we seem to have lost the ability to persuade. We stick a label on someone. Oh, you're a racist, and it's the end of the argument. I'm someone who believes that once somebody says something racist, that that's not the end of the argument. That's the beginning of the discussion. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's what we have to do on the left a lot and, and, and to, to bring the temperature down. But as it is... Um, people on the alt-right are definitely responding, especially on social media and online. I mean, that's what these, these supposed free speech events were all about, was the fact that these were reactions to what these people are claiming is this uh, horrendous oppressiveness on, from the left on campus. Yeah. And uh, it, it's trolling. And, and it, it fundamentally is trolling, and I think the folks on the far left are finally figuring it out that they're being trolled and aren't responding violently the way they did initially, but... Right. Right. I, I was going to... Maybe, Zoltan, you haven't had a, a chance to speak yet, and um, I wondered if you, you wanted to sort of respond from your perspective to, to this... Um, yeah, this, this idea that we're seeing about um, campuses being um, sort of chilling speech in this, in this way, like this, this claim of free speech on, on the right. Um, do, yeah, student protests are and always have been messy. Um, and what I witnessed at Evergreen, certainly they're loud, loud boisterous, rowdy, um, sometimes shouting people down. Um, and as Jamil said, uh, that comes from anger for from years of trying to suggest reforms and they're not happening. It's also not necessarily just about the colleges in isolation. Uh, but the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, been slow to come to college campuses like Evergreen. Um, we had two African-American brothers who were shot by Olympia police not far from our campus in 2015. And that certainly feeds into what happened at Evergreen, this frustration that these things keep happening uh, without a response from society. So many of our students had, before they even arrived on campus, participated in high school walkouts and protests um, back home in their communities. So this is something that isn't just happening on college campuses, this is something that's happening in society. There is a polarization. Uh, there are reasons for the polarization, and instead of simply looking at the conflict as the problem, to look at the roots of the conflict and where it's coming from. Right, exactly, exactly. And I, I don't know if uh, at this moment uh, would be a good time, but we're, we were talking about um, this, well, I know that this panel actually in, in Crosscut's characterization of what's going on is, um, you know, the rising tide of hate and hate speech on, on college campuses. And I know uh, you, David, have done a lot of uh, research into the, to the alt-right or the radical right. Um, I know, Zoltan, you, you have some thoughts about this as well. Um, does that ring true, this, this a rising tide of, of uh, hate and hate speech of this kind on college campuses specifically? Do these groups uh, target uh, campuses? Yeah, 110% they do. It's actually the biggest concern we have right now. Uh, the, the reason, I, I think actually, I'm becoming really profoundly concerned because I've been doing this stuff for 30 years and I've never seen it this bad. Um, the levels of recruitment. What we're actually seeing right now is primarily through the internet um, that young men between the ages of 14 and 30 are being heavily recruited and radicalized 
into the white nationalist movement. And it's being done very effectively through a number of different appeals, primarily um, through uh, you know, appeals to hatred of political correctness being one of them, but also appeals to um, uh, their fear of feminine, or feminism, their fears of uh, people of color. And really, in a lot of ways, it's it's and it's geared towards the people who are being really heavily recruited are pretty reasonably wealthy young suburban males. So we're getting, but really at risk of having an entire uh, this generation of radicalized young white males, and um, we need to wake up to it and deal with it. One of the ways it's really happening is that they're recruiting very heavily on campuses. Uh, we have there's an organization called. Adam Waffen SS that began online. Uh, these, uh, obviously, from their name, they are neo-Nazi, and they actually hold or hold events in the real world where they train to physically beat each other up, and, and then it's training to beat other people up is what it is. And so far in the last uh, eight months now, we've had five murders associated with this movement. Um, there's a second campus-oriented group called uh, Vanguard America. There was a, an offshoot of Adam Waffen SS, um, and we've seen some of that uh, flyering here in the Northwest and, and on UW campus. And then finally, the third offshoot is called calls themselves Patriot Nation, and uh, I really think because of their name, they're actually trying to recruit people from the Patriot movement as well as campus students, but they've been flyering a lot. They did a lot of flyering over in, in Kitsap County, and you'll see some of their flyers here around uh, Seattle as well. Okay. And, and, and they're, they're really intent on recruiting young white males, as many of them as they can. Right. And there, so that, there's that kind of targeting, the sort of recruitment targeting, and then there's also maybe a kind of targeting that, Zoltan, you, you might uh, be able to speak to, um, I don't know if we're, we're going to still have the opportunity to have the, uh, show this PowerPoint. Um, um, so if we could turn that, that on, if, if that's possible. Oh, yay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, an article that I wrote with two colleagues in the Huffington Post on another side of the Evergreen State College story. And uh, I wanted to show some images about kind of what we were looking at at Evergreen because I think the images kind of tell the story as well. So the, um, the backlash um, last year, part of the backlash focused on what we call the Day of Absence, which is a long and successful tradition of caucusing at Evergreen, usually with students of color uh, going off campus and a much larger um, uh, white student um, event on campus to discuss race and racism for one day out of 365 days. The Day of Presence then brings both communities um, together uh, two days later. So um, last year, in response to Black Lives Matter movement, the event for students of color was moved onto campus, and the event for white students, the event was moved off campus, but it was hardly a matter of whites being ordered off campus or, or coerced off campus as the media reported. There was space at the Unitarian Church where that off-campus event was met uh, for only 200 
um, students, 200 spaces. So 93% of our white students did not leave to participate. I had a class on catastrophes, and we met to discuss the relationship of disasters to race and racism, such as Hurricane Katrina. It was uh, very low key, but the media latched onto this myth of reverse racism and exclusion, a myth encouraged by a professor who had opposed uh, equity programs and uh, in hiring, for instance. So, um, for two days in May, students protested around longstanding grievances uh, about racism and administration and police decisions and occupied some offices. Part of the protest focused on the professor who had misrepresented day of absence. As I said, they were rude, loud, shouted him down, kind of the stuff I see in the exalted um, historical uh, documentaries about the 1960s, uh, but no worse than that. So um, as students and administrators were um, meeting to uh, de-escalate tensions, uh, that Friday, May 26th, uh, the professor, Brett Weinstein, went on Tucker Carlson's Fox show to complain about his treatment. And the show, again, misrepresented the day of absence as ordering all white people to leave campus. The instant I saw this broadcast, I knew gasoline was being poured on the fire and things would get ugly fast. One reason was that Carlson, who's a former mainstream conservative, was increasingly lionized by the alt-right as their media hero, as this Haaretz uh, article discusses. I was also alarmed because the exact same day, alt-right follower Jeremy Christian had slashed the throats of three men in Portland who had defended two African-American women. He had earlier given the Nazi salute at a Patriot prayer rally in Portland, greeted by Jake Von Ott of Identity Europa. So the real impacts of the alt-right growth were beginning to emerge. And sure enough, things got ugly fast. This is one reason I wanted to show images. Um, you can read them yourself. Um, here are some of the threats and racist harassment on 4chan the following week. Students, faculty, and staff got death threats, had their personal uh, contacts released to attract a swarm of abuse. And um, at the time, we thought this was simply an anonymous, um, sorry here, an anonymous or uh, spontaneous outpouring of hate in reaction to the student protest. But later, we started to notice that the different right-wing websites, College Fix, um, Campus Reform, et cetera, uh, all appeared to be reading from the same talking points about Evergreen, always using terms like crazy, insane, and mad in the headlines. We also wondered if Brett's brother, Eric, who works for the alt-right Silicon Valley exec, Peter Thiel, enabled Brett's rapid access to high-profile media. Uh, he also wrote a very interesting article about um, how emotions can be stirred by words within headlines to shape public opinion. So on June 1st, uh, a far-right phone threat evacuated the campus and closed it uh, for two, um, actually three days. Um, and on June 15th, um, offices closed early as Patriot Prayer held a rally uh, backing, backing Weinstein and attacking equity and diversity programs as anti-white. So the state patrol mobilized to keep the two sides, the um, the far right and the anti-fascists apart. Uh, this is not a mobilization for the student protest. This is for the reaction against them. So Joey Gibson's uh, Patriot Prayer um, 
was uh, portrayed in the media as merely pro-Trump conservatives, but many of his followers have been associated with violence. Um, the alt-right symbols of the Kekistan flag and Pepe the Frog were prominently displayed. Some of them were held by people of color who were motivated by far-right scapegoating, specifically of immigrants and especially Muslims. Uh, the Warriors for Freedom gang uh, and Three Percenter militias uh, were part of the protest. Um, the head of Warriors for Freedom uh, had earlier attended rallies with the same figure, Jake Von Ott. I photographed a lot of people that day at the rally. Um, so meet uh, Thorfinn uh, Odinson, a, a, a Portland Nazi leader, who's associated, sorry, I have to hold this up like this, uh, with the Cascade Legion militia, which is growing throughout the, mid the Northwest. He had this uh, image on his uh, Facebook page of white supremacists uh, symbolized by a Viking and Christian supremacists symbolized by a crusader together taking on the Jewish conspiracy that controls Black Lives Matter, feminism, LGBT rights, anarchist, communists. This is just one of the guys who is at Evergreen. There are quite a few more of these types of figures. So finally, There was um, the Evergreen, many, some Evergreen students, staff, and faculty had a community love counterpresence that day, but many feared that speaking out could attract the anonymous swarm of threats and so stayed away or stayed silent. And because of this chilling effect, the media has found few voices until now, really, to tell the other side of the story. Um, of course, the day after the, um, the rally, uh, the graduation for Evergreen was held off campus for the first time in Tacoma under heavy security due to these threats. And as we said in our article, what about the free speech of those who are working to create equity and diversity at our college? What about their ability to express their academic freedom without fear of intimidation and violence? What about the education of the students whose faculty and advisors were forced to go into hiding or hold classes in secret? So at the start of fall quarter, Um, more Greeners felt emboldened to attend a unity rally back on campus. A few of the student demands have been met for bias training, a few retention initiatives, but many others have not. The administration tends to just want to put the, the, uh, the spring behind us, but I think we have a great opportunity um, uh, to show how, um, instead of identity politics somehow being the enemy, that identity politics, that people's identities can be respected, and at the same time, you can bring together uh, people around common interests, around common ground. Um, uh, there's been this weird propaganda about Evergreen being postmodernists, uh, Evergreen faculty being postmodernists who don't believe in science, but what we're really about <laughs> is, uh, is building community, uh, building community around lines of difference, and that's actually uh, what my uh, book is also about, I don't actually have one to hold up, but here's the cover of it, <laughs> about how native rights can actually benefit their rural uh, white neighbors. And so identity politics and unity politics are not necessarily in con contradiction. And Evergreen is a unique place where such ideas can be synthesized rather than polarized. But it's also not such a unique college in that we still have a lot of uh, challenges to meet like other colleges around the country.
Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, maybe this is related to what you're going to say. I mean, I think there's something important to talk to, about here regarding speech and uh, and violence and threats. Um, and maybe you know, probably all of the panelists have have thoughts to say about this, including Jamil, who is who. I think you do have something to say about this. Um, and also, also Ethan, um, just because the First Amendment protects most uh, speech, um, but then is, are there exceptions? Are, are, are we talking about a relationship between speech and uh, physical violence uh, on some level? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. If... Sure, so certainly if there is a, a, like a, a true threat of, of violence against an individual or even a group of individuals, um, that's not typically going to be protected. One of the difficulties is understanding exactly what the scope of that is. So typically, um, racial epithets and racial slurs used um, in an offensive manner are not gonna rise to that um, under the, the current understanding of the First Amendment. Now, this, like, a place like Seattle University, that's a private university, you're not gonna have those kinds of issues because this isn't a public institution subject to First Amendment limitations. Uh, and we think one of the big questions we have to ask when it comes to thinking about emotional or psychological violence um, is to what extent does that create a heckler's veto for significant political speech? So um, if we're going to say hate speech is um, speech that demonizes or makes people feel unsafe or uncomfortable, um, one of the issues that may arise is that people who don't like that speech will say, I feel harmed, and can therefore silence a speaker based on um, a claim of emotional harm. May or may not be true, um, but to date the Supreme Court's been very unwilling to uh, use the offensive nature of speech or um, even extreme psychological harm caused by speech as a justification to silence it. So a, a really strong example is um, a case called Snyder versus Phelps, which is where one of the most despicable organizations in the country, Westboro Baptist Church, um, protested at a um, soldier's funeral, and the protest was very much directed specifically at that soldier, who I don't think they knew at all, um, saying things like, "God, you know, God's glad your son is dead, and all kinds of things like that. Um, as you might expect, the father experienced extreme emotional distress from that, um, had physiological symptoms for years and years, was deeply dep depressed as a result of that. Um, and as you also might expect, Westboro Baptist Church was sued over this for emotional distress, went up to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, you know, since this speech is on a matter of public concern, um, we're not going to allow these people to be held liable for damages, even though this individual is obviously deeply harmed. They didn't question the emotional distress he faced. And I think that shows a, the court's reluctance to allow people to silence speech um, based on feeling offended. Um, and we, I think, therefore, we have to ask, what is the remedy? Uh, and typically, the courts have said, uh, the remedy is counter-speech. Um, so John Milton said a long, long time ago that uh, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. In other words, the best remedy, the way to counter this, is through what you, what you see, which is counter-protest. Um, now, uh, that's with understanding that the law is a blunt instrument and it creates a 
possible scheme of abuse and, and chilling speech, and therefore um, counter speech has been considered the proper remedy rather than legal sanction. Um, Jamil, did, did you have something that you wanted to say about this issue? Uh, you know, this relationship between um, speech and violence, um, or, or you know, based on what Ethan just said, is there anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think, um, and this is where this is where I get accused of radicalism. Um, is that um, I think to me, limits being set set on what can be deemed as racist enough for action is racism. Um, and I think the people who get to control what that limit is are often not. I mean, look at this panel. I mean, <laughs> the people who are considered experts on this topic by a majority are not people who look or sound or talk or love like me. Um, and and, and I, think that, I think that's an issue. And I think that one can't claim to be anti-racist and then say, well, here's our boundary on how far and how far you can claim what is anti-racism. And you don't get to set that boundary. We, the powers that have historically controlled everything, are the people who get to set that boundary. I think that line in itself is the most inequitable portion of what's happening, is the people who get to say, oh, we don't support racism, but we also get to dictate all of the forms in which what is considered racist and what is considered racist enough to take action. Um, and you can take that same word racism and apply it to misogyny, apply it to transphobia, apply it to any form of oppression. Um, and I think that's the issue that we really saw. And I think, I think this is the thing I'm continuing to try to highlight is like for me, that is the thing that feels most violent. It's not the, th it's not the other things. It's the thing that says that I cannot say that this feels like harm to me or I can't say it feels like harm for me enough for people to want to take action. Um, and I think that, um, and I think just as a statement that everyone should remember, and I, I feel like people forget this a lot, is that America has done enough harm to so many people that nothing feels like the limit for reparations and nothing feels like the limit to redeem that. I, I, I have not received enough um, rest, restoration for anyone to claim that there is a limit to how we can how we can squash op like oppressive behavior, um, yeah. yeah. I'd like to I'd like to add um, what we faced at Evergreen. Sure, there's such a thing as a heckler's veto. What we faced at Evergreen was um, a doxer's veto, was a troller's veto. Uh, what do we do when there's a situation where an entire community is terrified, even speaking out, because they're afraid that their parents are going to get a call uh, from somebody uh, threatening them for what their kids have been doing? That type of thing happens. And so the question becomes in this era is how far do we allow the normalization of real fascism? The term fascist is overused. It usually in the United States means, oh, it's meanie or it's somebody I don't like or... Uh, someone who's repressive. We're talking here about real fascists uh, were involved in this, and to what extent do we allow them to be normalized and to terrorize communities uh, through, through online access? And, and it, you know, it's very true that the courts, the courts are very limited in terms of what they will do, uh, because we do have the First Amendment in that, that gives a huge amount of leeway 
for all kinds of speech. Um, the, uh, the court that I think that matters most right now is the court of public opinion. And unfortunately, uh, that court is being really heavily swayed by white nationalist jackasses like Tucker Carlson. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 that he can promote this kind of stuff on national TV is profoundly disturbing. You know, just as an example of how cynical this whole they're denying my free speech ploy is, which is what the alt-right is doing. It, it, let's just go back to that June 15th thing when Joey shows up at Evergreen and they have, and he's right, they had all kinds of white nationalists in there among their militia patriot groups. And um, not only that, but when, when we got into the quad on the campus, the police created this line between the counter-protesters and the um, alt-right protesters. And, but it didn't happen initially, and so initially over on one side of the, the park, there was this intermingling, and the police then hardened the line, and one of the guys uh, that was caught on the, um, the alt-right side of the demonstration was, uh, was somebody, a black block kid, and he got the crap beaten out of him over there and, and got handed over to the police. And I sat there and watched it and I videotaped it. <coughs> well, about 20 minutes later, Joey Gibson decides to walk around the side and goes over to the counter-protest side with his hands up and saying, I'm all peaceful, blah, 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 and trying to show that what, he, what they're really trying to do is make the left look violent. And sure enough, he got, he got uh, pepper sprayed and had to go get his face washed out. Uh, nobody punched him, though, which is what he really wanted. So, in other words, it was okay for the alt-righters to beat the crap out of somebody that they didn't agree with, but, oh, if we go over to the other side, we'll, uh, we can, you know, our free speech is being denied, right? Well, th th and this is how cynical they are about it. These guys actually don't really care about anybody's free speech except their own, and they don't believe in the pr principle of free speech. What they're doing is manipulating the court of public opinion. And, and this was all, this is all propaganda ploys. This is something that fascists, thank you for mentioning this, have done since the 1920s. You know, there's, I've got a book from the Holocaust Museum of these, uh, uh, of the brown shirts being uh, uh, posters, propaganda posters of the brown shirts being hauled off by their brothers from the violent communist, uh, uh, violent communist street fighters. And, that was, that's what they do. Right, they, right. They I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt to you. Um, sorry, so sorry. Uh, we have like a minute left. I just wanted to see if we yeah. have any time to, to address this at all. We're talking about speech on campus. I want to just get a, get a feel for how you feel about um, what universities can do or, or should do uh, with regard to what feels like perhaps a targeting or an escalation of these kinds of events or maybe a, a renewal of these kinds of events that happened on campuses or maybe have always been happening. Um, what should or can universities do about this? Um, create limits, increase security, not have any limits? What, what, do, you, what do you all think? I personally believe that um, all universities have to make right now this is the world we live in, have to make a hard decision on what, are the, what is the moral value and what are the things that they're, what, what is the priority? And the priority should be student safety and student support at all times. And if any, anything, the state of other people, anything, 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 
um, expresses uh, um, a, uh, a harm to that that priority, then it has to be taken it has to be taken seriously. And it, yeah. Yeah, and Evergreen actually has a new rule that any rally has to be uh, at least co-sponsored by a student group. And so there's some mechanism and administrators can put that in place. But I really think the battle for the hearts and minds of Americans is not in the colleges, it's in the high schools. That's where the far right, where white supremacists are recruiting these kids and where really that kind of work needs to be done much earlier on. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, well, um, I think we're about to be out of time. Um, thank you so much for being here, everybody. Thank you so much, the <laughs> panelists. <laughs>